Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Updates on one of the most powerful storms ever recorded in the U.S. Major damage and flooding after Hurricane Ian hit the Gulf Coast. Authorities are asking residents to remain vigilant. The head of a U.S. oil group raising concerns about the nation's emergency oil stockpile, accusing the Biden administration of using it to help Democrats ahead of the midterms. A Secretary of State election to watch out for this November. The 2020 presidential election continues to cast its shadow over the race in Georgia this year. In Pennsylvania, a Senate candidate is being criticized for alleged connections to a gang. Training videos reportedly posted by a children's hospital are causing controversy online. In them, hospital staff talk parents into accepting children's gender transition. Rescue workers are searching for missing people and residents are picking up the pieces from wrecked homes. That's after Hurricane Ian ripped through Florida's Gulf Coast area. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the hurricane's impact. Streets were turned into rivers in Fort Myers as residents took refuge on higher ground. Some who refused to evacuate were trapped in their homes. The storm's sustained winds reached up to 150 miles per hour near Category 5 levels, the most severe status. Storm surge, rising levels of ocean water being pushed inland by strong winds, is threatening flooding across the state. The storm surge pushes water into, so you have every canal and river that usually drains that rain, it's gonna, they're gonna flow backward. The water gets pushed into these areas, flows backward, and then that rainfall has nowhere to drain. So even if you're inland, you have dangers associated with the water. Officials are urging people to heed warnings and stay safe. People just need to uh, stay focused. They need to listen to their officials. They need to understand what the threats and the dangers are. Those first few hours, days after the storm passes are just as dangerous as when the storm is going over. The storm weakened to a Category 1 hurricane Wednesday night. Although hurricane and tropical storm warnings have been discontinued for southern Florida, citizens were reminded to remain vigilant. Even if you see the water receding, it's not the time to go out there and, and look at it or collect shells or whatever it is. We've seen this in the, these type of storms. When the winds come down, the winds, winds decrease, that water comes back in. It could be incredibly dangerous. More than two million homes and businesses in the state were without electricity Thursday morning. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is requesting that President Biden approve a major disaster declaration for all 67 counties in the state. When the storm passes, the federal government's going to be there to help you recover. DeSantis is also asking Biden to grant FEMA authority to provide 100% federal cost share for debris removal and emergency protective measures for 60 days after Ian's landfall. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Now we get an update on the role climate change is or is not playing on Hurricane Ian. Our next guest is the author of Inconvenient Facts and is an expert reviewer for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Joining us now is geologist Gregory Wrightstone, who's the executive director of the CO2 Coalition. So glad you could make it on the show today, Gregory. No, thank you for having me. There's, uh, as usual, there's so much to talk about when it comes to climate change. Yes, indeed. And first, how have you been personally affected by Hurricane Ian? Did you have to evacuate your home? Yeah, I've got our homes located in the little town of Waimama, Florida, about 20 miles south of Tampa. Uh, it looked like we were going to get slammed, but... In the last few hours, the hurricane headed a little bit south, so we were on the 
the good if there is a good side of a hurricane we were on that and we've actually as far as i know we still have power at the house this morning we did evacuate my my son-in-law daughter three grandchildren live in our home there and they evacuated on sunday uh, so they're sheltering in place in georgia well, Gregory, I'm so glad to hear that you and your family are safe. Now, many media companies have attributed this near Category 5 Hurricane Ian as a product of climate change. Is there any data to suggest warmer oceans lead to more severe hurricanes? There is not. In fact, there's a good argument that can be made that warmer temperatures lead to more wind shear, which actually cuts down on the number of hurricanes. There's more evidence of that than the other. And the fellow by the, at the NOAA, their top hurricane expert is a gentleman by the name of, now you'll love this name, he's a hurricane expert, and his last name is Christopher Landsea. It's, uh, it's almost as good as a, as a geologist named Wright Stone. So, uh, but Christopher Landsea's concluded there might be slump, some increase uh, due to warming oceans. He puts it at 1% increase in wind speed. Well, I don't think if Hurricane Ian came on shore, you could tell the difference between 153 and 152 miles per hour. It's, it's, it's so small, you can't even measure that. Seems like a very minute change. Now, what is happening to the Earth's climate in terms of temperature, and how much of that is caused by man? Well, we, it, it, we can't attribute, we don't know how much is by CO2 and how much is by man. We've, we've warmed about a little less than one degree Celsius since 1900. Uh, that's not too alarming to me, and that's all the warming we've seen. Uh, but we've seen those type of, of increases uh, going back through time. In fact, if we go back the last 10,000 years, uh, there were nine other warming trends similar to where, what, we, what we are today, and five of those nine had higher rates of warming than we saw in the 20th century. So to conclude that Increasing CO2 is driving this warming. Is, uh, it, it's just not supported by the data. We do agree that CO2 is a greenhouse gas and has some warming influence, but we see it as being completely overestimated uh, by the IPCC and the climate industrial complex. Uh, some of our experts here put the warming effect with a doubling of CO2 at around eight-tenths of a degree Celsius. So if we increase from 400 to 800 parts per million, we're at 400 now, uh, we would see eight-tenths of a degree of warming based on that, that carbon dioxide. Um, that's not very alarming to me. And it would take us some 150 or so years to get to that, that doubling of CO2. Well, thank you for helping us understanding the data. Now, geologist Gregory Wrightstone, executive director of the CO2 Coalition, pleasure speaking with you as always. Thank you. From natural disasters to domestic energy, the head of a U.S. Oil Energy Association is raising concerns about the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That's America's emergency stockpile of oil used in times of supply issues. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more on the industry experts' concerns, in particular how the Biden administration is using the stockpile. The head of the U.S. Oil and Gas Association, Tim Stewart, says the Biden administration is draining America's emergency oil supply to keep Democrats afloat ahead of the midterms. Here's what he told Just the News recently. This is the first time in history, honestly, that the Strategic Petroleum Reserve ha has been used as a campaign credit card to, to buy down political risk for the midterms. As of last week, the stockpile dropped to 422 million barrels of oil. That's the lowest level since 1984. 
and it's down over 30 percent from a year ago. To put it in perspective, Stewart said at the current rate, the U.S. is selling more oil from its emergency stockpile than most medium-sized OPEC countries are producing. He also said the U.S. is selling twice as much oil per day than it's producing out of Alaska. And this is happening without new oil going in to replace it. And so it is a real concern. It's going to be very expensive to replace that 200 million barrels that we've, we've distributed. Back in March, President Biden set a plan to release 1 million barrels per day from the reserve over six months. The goal? To bring fuel prices down in the U.S. At the time, the White House called it an unprecedented move, saying, This record release will provide a historic amount of supply to serve as bridge until the end of the year when domestic production ramps up. As of Thursday, the national average gas price is $3.78 per gallon. While that is lower than March when the White House started releasing reserves, compared to a year ago, gas prices are up nearly 20 percent. The current reserve release program ends in October. The Energy Department has proposed replenishing the reserve by allowing it to buy oil in future years at fixed preset prices. NTD has contacted the White House for comment. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. In other news, Secretary of State elections at the state level usually aren't that visible, but this year the race in Georgia is. The 2020 presidential election continues to cast its shadow over this year's race. Here are the details. In the Georgia Secretary of State election this November, incumbent Republican Brad Raffensperger will face off against Democratic challenger B. Nguyen. Raffensperger has been in the national headlines during the 2020 presidential election for his role in the recount and certification of election results. Then President Trump made a phone call to Raffensperger on January 2, 2021, aimed at addressing allegations of voter fraud in Georgia. That phone call later got included in the articles of Trump's second impeachment. Raffensperger was first elected in 2018, and in the primary this May, he won by 52 percent to 34 percent over the Trump-supported Jody Heiss. An estimated 75,000 Democrats crossed over to vote in the GOP primary. Georgia allows this under its open primary rules. Raffensperger's opponent, Nguyen, is currently a state representative. She commented on Raffensperger's role in the 2020 presidential election earlier this month. She said, quote, Some folks believe my opponent is a hero, and I admit I breathed a sigh of relief when he did not find an extra 11,780 votes. But should the bar for an elected official be that low? In the words of Stacey Abrams, not committing treason does not make you a hero. A poll this month by the University of Georgia and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution shows Raffensperger well ahead of Nguyen by a margin of 50 to 31. And Raffensperger has become a household name following the 2020 elections, while Nguyen isn't nearly as well known. According to state records, she has raised less money, $2.2 million, compared to Raffensperger's $3.8 million. But Raffensperger still faces his own challenges. Trump supporters who are resentful of his role in the 2020 election may refuse to vote for him in November. In Pennsylvania, the Democratic Senate nominee is coming under fire for alleged connections to a gang. Here's the story. John Fetterman is Pennsylvania's Democratic Senate candidate. The Washington Free Beacon reports that Fetterman touted connections to the Crips Street Gang when he was running for mayor of the borough of Braddock, Pennsylvania in 2005. According to the article, Fetterman used the slogan, Vote John Mayor of Braddock, which reflected how local Crips gang members spelled the name of the town with two C's at the end instead of C-K. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in 2006 reported that Fetterman said the spelling with two C's at the end acknowledges an allegiance that many of the younger residents there have with the Crips gang. 
Using his own money, Fetterman created websites promoting the borough such as Braddock.com. The websites are no longer active, but they described how Braddock was unofficially renamed by the young and disenfranchised for its crip allegiance. According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Fetterman has denied he holds an affinity for the Crips. Republicans and GOP Senate nominee for Pennsylvania Mehmet Oz have portrayed Fetterman as being soft on crime. Fetterman is chairman of Pennsylvania's Board of Pardons and has cast the only vote to free multiple prisoners convicted of first-degree murder. In January, he appointed Celeste Trusty to serve as secretary of the board, a prison reform activist who has called to disarm the police. She is referred to Mumaya Abu-Jamal as a friend and my buddy, according to the Washington Free Beacon. Abu Jamal was sentenced to life for the 1981 murder of Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner. A spokesperson for Fetterman explained the candidate's stance on crime, saying, John believes there are people who deserve to spend the rest of their life behind bars in prison, but he also supports common-sense bipartisan policies to free the wrongly convicted and provide second chances for deserving and nonviolent offenders. On Tuesday, the Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police announced it had endorsed Mehmet Oz. Oz delivered a jab at Fetterman's record on crime when he stood at the podium saying, The brave men and women of the Philadelphia police risked their lives day in and day out to protect and serve our communities. They deserve a U.S. Senator who will also work with communities to make our streets safer and better places to live and work. But my opponent, John Fetterman, would rather be the advocate for convicted murderers and violent criminals over our police officers and crime victims. Recent polls show that the Oz-Fetterman race is tightening, with only a few points between the two candidates. Democratic Senator Ron Wyden has blocked a resolution to end the COVID-19 national emergency declaration. He says the measure would leave the country short of health care providers. Wyden stepped in after GOP Senator Roger Marshall introduced the resolution. Marshall's one-page measure would terminate the COVID national emergency declaration. He said that the Biden administration is using the COVID declaration and other emergency powers for excessive inflationary spending, vaccine and mask mandates, and student loan forgiveness. Marshall noted that President Biden recently said that the COVID-19 pandemic is over. Marshall says that should also mean the end of the emergency declaration and the extra powers that go with it. Wyden said that ending the emergency would exacerbate doctor and nursing shortages. Marshall agreed that shortages are a problem, but says that government intervention is not the solution. He says government created the problem in the first place. The White House is responding to an apparent President Biden gaffe. At a Wednesday event, Biden looked around and asked where Congresswoman Jackie Walorski was, but Walorski was recently killed in a car crash. I want to thank all of you here for including bipartisan elected officials like Representative Governor, Senator Braun, Senator Booker, Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was was going to be here. Again, he's going to see her family in just two days, and uh, she was on top of mind. I mean, I don't, that is, (laughs) I mean, that is, uh, that is not an unusual uh, unusual scenario there. Green, I have John Lennon okay. top of mind just about every day, but I'm not looking around for him anyway. When you sign a bill for John Lennon, Lennon as president, then we can have this conversation. Well, okay, go ahead. Biden was speaking at a conference on hunger earlier on Wednesday. He was thanking members of Congress who supported a bill aimed at tackling hunger. Walorski was one of four co-sponsors of the bill to fund the conference. She was killed in a car crash in early August, and Biden issued a statement back then with his condolences. Multiple reporters pressed White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on Biden's behavior later that day. Jean-Pierre said because Walorski's family will travel to Washington to watch Biden sign a bill honoring Walorski, she was on the president's mind. 
The Justice Department says Bernie Madoff's victims will soon receive another $372 million in compensation. The former financier was responsible for running the largest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history. Madoff's fraud was estimated to be as much as $64 billion. It went undiscovered for many years until 2008. The latest compensation will go from the government's Madoff Victim Fund to around 27,000 victims. More than 400 of them had yet to recoup a penny from any source. The Ponzi scheme involved nearly 43,000 victims. Now at least 95% of them with approved claims will have received at least one payment. Victims will have, on average, recouped 88% of their losses. Madoff pleaded guilty to 11 criminal counts and was sentenced to 150 years in prison. He died behind bars in April 2021 at age 82. According to a new survey, the majority of American voters are concerned a depression is on the way. The telephone and online survey by Rasmussen Reports found that 57% of American adults believe a 1930s-like depression is likely over the next few years, including 21% who think a depression is very likely. 32% don't think a depression is likely, and another 12% said they are not sure. The findings are very similar to those found in a May Rasmussen Report survey. Inflation has hit a two-decade high since President Biden took office. According to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, real average hourly earnings of U.S. workers have fallen by 2.8 percent seasonally adjusted over the last 12 months. Data compiled by the Heritage Foundation shows that Americans have lost the equivalent of $4,200 in annual income under the Biden administration. They also noted that the average American worker's real annual earnings increased by $4,000 under former President Trump. And still to come, a group of over 60 Tennessee lawmakers is asking a hospital to stop performing cross-sex surgery on minors. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. Police are investigating a school shooting that took place in California yesterday. Six adults were injured, but fortunately no minors. The shooting took place near the King Estate School campus in Oakland. It contains four different schools ranging from middle to high school. Police said the incident happened near the part of the campus that houses a high school for 16 to 21-year-old immigrants. Six are injured. It's not clear whether they're staff or students, but police say they're all over the age of 18. The incident started right before school was dismissed for the day. That reportedly created panic among waiting parents. Police say they're investigating the shooter's motive. Republican lawmakers in Tennessee are calling on a Nashville hospital to stop performing cross-sex surgery on children. That's after the medical center came under fire last week for leaked videos that went viral online. Over 60 Tennessee House Republicans asked Vanderbilt University Medical Center to immediately halt cross-sex procedures on minors. According to a letter sent to the hospital, while those 18 years and older are recognized as legal adults and free to make decisions in their best interests, it is an egregious error of judgment that an institution as highly respected as Vanderbilt would condone and promote harmful and irreversible procedures for minor children in the name of profit. The lawmakers were referring to findings by reporter Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire who posted content about the hospital on social media. That includes this video in which a doctor openly discusses how profitable transgender surgeries can be for the hospital. It's a lot of money. These surgeries make a lot of money. Uh, So female to male chest reconstruction can bring in $40,000. 
Another video Walsh posted shows a Vanderbilt health law expert telling employees that staff refusing to be involved in those surgeries due to their religious beliefs would face consequences. The hospital says the videos Walsh posted misrepresent facts about the services it offers, saying VUMC requires parental consent to treat a minor patient who is to be seen for issues related to transgender care, and that their policies allow employees to decline to participate in care they find morally objectionable. The governor of Tennessee has called for an investigation into the matter. A clinic at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is purportedly training staff to talk parents into accepting children's gender transitions. Hospital training videos were posted on Twitter where they are gaining a lot of attention. The Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's gender clinic purportedly posted the following videos for training purposes. The scenario involves a teenage boy named Jacob who is admitted to the hospital after fainting from not eating. He says he wants to be a girl and prefers to be called Amanda, and that he stops eating in order to stay skinny and more female. And we're going to come up with a plan to help your mom get on board. When parents aren't on board, sometimes we have to take baby steps. The training video then shows the nurse joining two other hospital staff to discuss how to convince Jacob's mother. They want her to accept that her son is now her daughter. Staff members in the scenario then begin a private conversation with the mother. We want everyone in your family to be taken care of and be on the same page. I don't know what you expect me to do about this. Nothing right now, except for love your child just as you've been doing. And this is just a new layer of information that we have to build a solution. Um, so, you know, we have to start identifying Jacob as a female because that's how she identifies. The video ends with the mother saying, Okay, I'm not going to be able to do that right away. Not at all. But I'll try. Parent and conservative activist Megan Eileen posted the videos last week. She says she found these clips online as a part of professional resources offered by the hospital's Gender and Sexuality Development Clinic. The clinic's webpage that reportedly contained the videos is no longer accessible. On its website, the clinic states that it offers psychosocial and medical support for gender nonconforming, gender expansive, and transgender children and youth up to age 21 and their families. The controversy comes amid a number of growing pediatric health care providers embracing what they call gender affirmation care, which is rooted in progressive gender ideology. According to WebMD, gender affirmation care includes mental health care, cross-sex hormones, and gender transition surgery. NTD reached out to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for comment on the videos, but did not hear back. Seventeen attorneys general are asking the Supreme Court to take up a civil rights lawsuit. It's from an evangelical Christian postal worker who quit his job after they denied his request to have Sundays off. The legal filing comes as the Supreme Court is poised to begin its new session with its first Biden-appointed justice on the bench. It also comes as the high court has become increasingly protective of First Amendment religious rights. The state attorneys general filed a friend-of-the-court brief with the high court, urging it to hear Gerald Groff's appeal. Fifteen federal lawmakers also filed a friend-of-the-court brief. According to the West Virginia attorney general, Groff began working as a mail carrier for USPS in 2012. The Postal Service initially tried to accommodate his request not to work on Sundays, but eventually stopped accommodating him. He quit in 2019. His lawsuit claims the Postal Service discriminated against him.
The Justice Department is taking American Airlines and JetBlue Airways to federal court in Boston. The DOJ wants to break up an alliance between the two airlines that allows them to share gates and loyalty points in Boston and New York. American, the world's largest airline by market share, says the partnership with JetBlue helps them compete against Delta and United. However, the Biden administration says the partnership amounts to a partial merger and reduces competition. According to one estimate, it could be costing air travelers as much as $700 million, but both airlines dispute that. Meanwhile, JetBlue is already facing a federal antitrust probe over its nearly $4 billion proposed merger with Spirit Airlines. JetBlue's shareholders are scheduled to vote on that next month. Over to Nevada, a water company is bankrupt amid the region's worsening drought. One of the state's longest-running private water suppliers filed for bankruptcy earlier this month. They had already closed down back in July when the Lake Mead Reservoir reached failure level. Basic Water Company said it could no longer pump water to the almost 300,000-person city of Henderson and four commercial industries as they have for decades. The company's president and CFO said that they have been trying to expand the intake pipe as the drought worsened, but it proved unfeasible. Earlier projections predicted that Basic Water could continue operating until April 2023 when Lake Mead was anticipated to reach failure level. But the CFO said, quote, it became clear in May of 2022 that circumstances had become even more dire. City officials said the company's bankruptcy would have no impact on the city's water supply. The city simply shifted their water source. Going to the grocery store and grabbing something labeled healthy doesn't necessarily mean it's actually healthy, but the FDA wants to fix that. There are new standards in the works before that label can get stamped on the package. That's because healthy is a regulated claim, which was first defined in 1994, but the FDA says things have changed since then, so the standards need to change too. For example, there are some cereals that have a lot of added sugar but still meet the definition of the healthy claim, while salmon, which is high in beneficial polyunsaturated fat, does not. This new healthy label would consider all of the nutrients in foods. The changes come on the same day the White House released a new national strategy to end hunger and improve nutrition and physical activity. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, Vice President Kamala Harris reiterates the United States' support for Taiwan. She was in Japan yesterday for a state funeral. And the Chinese Yuan hits a record low against the U.S. dollar. Nations keep playing strategic chess in the Indo-Pacific. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. China is undermining the international rules-based order. That's according to U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, who spoke during a visit to Japan. Entity's Chenny Wu has the details. Vice President Kamala Harris delivered a speech aboard the USS Howard Naval Ship at Japan's Yokosuka Naval Base Wednesday. China has challenged the freedom of the seas. China has flexed its military and economic might to coerce and intimidate its neighbors. She called China's behavior in the East China Sea, South China Sea and Taiwan Strait disturbing and pledged to deepen unofficial ties with Taiwan. The United States believes that peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait 
is an essential feature of a free and open Indo-Pacific. And we will continue to fly, sail, and operate undaunted and unafraid wherever and whenever international law allows. Harris is in the region to lead a presidential delegation for the state funeral of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and to meet with government officials from Japan, South Korea and Australia. After Japan, she'll travel to South Korea, where she's expected to visit the demilitarization zone between North Korea and South Korea. Chen Wu, NTD News. More on Taiwan. The island will scrap mandatory quarantine for all international arrivals beginning on October 13th. The Ministry of Health and Welfare made the announcement today. Arriving passengers will still need seven days of self-health monitoring. They will be allowed to go outside but are required to conduct rapid tests regularly. The ministry added that up to 150,000 passengers can arrive in Taiwan each week. This is the first major step by the Taiwanese government to open its borders since 2020 when restrictions were imposed in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And updates from the Pacific. The Solomon Islands wavers about cooperating with the U.S., while the U.K. plans to join long-term military drills in the region. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has that and more with China in Focus. The Biden administration is working to rally Pacific Island leaders, but this week that effort met with a setback. That's as the Solomon Islands reportedly said it would not sign a joint declaration the U.S. will soon unveil. President Biden is hosting a dozen of leaders from Pacific countries on Wednesday and Thursday. The forum is the first of its kind and comes as Washington and the Chinese regime compete for influence in the region. Beijing has made major advances in recent years. The Solomon Islands broke its long-standing diplomatic ties with Taiwan in 2019. Earlier this year, the nation struck a security pact with the Chinese communist regime. That deal allows more Chinese security presence in the country. It stoked fear in the West that China may eventually operate a military base there, just a thousand miles from Australia's coast. According to Reuters, the Solomon Islands sent a note to the Pacific Islands Forum telling other members it would not sign the U.S. proposed declaration and that it needs more time to consider the matter. Back on the military front, the U.K. is joining a number of extended military drills. The training involves multiple nations in the Indo-Pacific, including Australia, Japan and South Korea. According to the UK's Royal Air Forces, or RAF, the exercises will run until December as part of the UK's continued focus on the Indo-Pacific region. Four RAF Typhoon fighters and one air-to-air refueling aircraft travel to Australia. There, they'll participate in exercise pitch black in Darwin. The jets join other aircraft from 17 countries. The deployment comes as the Royal Navy celebrates one year of permanent aircraft carrier presence in the region. UK Defence Secretary Ben Wallace said the long-term deployment demonstrates the UK's commitment to maintaining its historical ties to the region. The increased engagement follows former Prime Minister Boris Johnson's announcement last year that the country's vision is to deeply engage with the Indo-Pacific in support of trade, shared security and shared values by 2030. The Chinese yuan has hit a record low against the U.S. dollar. 
The internationally traded yuan is at its lowest since data first became available in 2011. On the other hand, the dollar continues to surge. Investors tend to see the U.S. currency as a safe haven for their money in turbulent times. The yuan fell past the seven per dollar line last week, a threshold Chinese officials have been trying to uphold in the past decade. They've only allowed the yuan to cross the line during especially trying times for the economy, during Trump's trade war and the beginning of the pandemic, for example. A weaker yuan makes Chinese goods cheaper and more attractive for international consumers. In the past, the U.S. has accused the Chinese regime of intentionally devaluing its currency. That's to boost exports and make imports from the U.S. more expensive. News of the record low comes as China's economic growth looks increasingly dim. The World Bank expects Chinese growth to lag behind the rest of Asia for the first time since 1990. It's largely blamed on the regime's zero COVID-19 policy and China's real estate crisis. Just ahead, Russian President Putin plans to host a signing ceremony to annex four regions of Ukraine. The regions encompass 15 percent of Ukraine's territory. And communities in Spain are installing more solar panels to counter the energy crisis and to become more self-sufficient. We'll have more shortly here on NTD News Today. Russia is taking a major step towards annexing four Ukrainian regions. President Vladimir Putin will host a signing ceremony in the Kremlin, incorporating about 15 percent of Ukraine. As Russia moves closer to annexing parts of Ukraine, Ukrainians are fleeing those Russian-occupied territories, dismissing the results of a five-day vote that showed strong support for joining Russia so-called referendums that Kiev and the West have widely discredited as illegal shams. But here in Moscow, preparations for the impending annexation moved swiftly. This stage has been set up in the Red Square with giant video screens and billboards reading Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, Kherson, Russia. Those four provinces that stand to be annexed make up about 15 percent of Ukrainian territory altogether. On Wednesday, the Russian-installed administrations of those four provinces formally asked Russian President Vladimir Putin to incorporate them into Russia. Putin could proclaim the annexation in a speech within days and has warned he would use nuclear weapons to protect any Russian territory from attack. And in a series of calls to rally international support against annexation, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke to the leaders of countries, including Britain, Canada, Germany and Turkey to press for more military aid and tougher sanctions on Moscow. U.S. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said Washington would send more financial aid to assist Ukraine. And today the United States is announcing an additional $1.1 billion package of weapons and equipment for Ukraine through the Ukraine Security Assistant Initiative. The announcement brings the total U.S. security aid to $16.2 billion. Washington and the EU also said they would impose more economic costs on Moscow. And we're determined to make the Kremlin pay for this further escalation. So we propose sweeping new import bans on Russian products. This will keep Russian products out of the European market and deprive Russia of an additional 7 billion euros in revenues. 
Finland will close its border to Russian tourists from midnight local time. It's expected to lead to a significant drop in cross-border traffic. Here's a government official making the announcement today. The entry restrictions will enter into force on 30th September 22, midnight, and they will remain in force until further notice. The aim of the resolution is to halt Russian tourism into Finland and transit through Finland to other Schengen countries. The foreign minister says the inflow of Russians is now endangering Finland's international relations. Poland, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania all closed their borders earlier this month. He added that entry for family visits as well as for work and studies will still be permitted. Finland has shut down a section of one of its main highways to test their fighter jets. This is the first time they've done so on such a scale in decades. During the drill, fighter jets will practice landings and takeoffs on a reserve road runway. The road has not been used for practice landings in decades. That's because it's the main highway connecting the capital Helsinki to the more northern parts of the country. Finland has a dozen similar reserve runways designed for wartime use around the country. It took Finland's Air Force only a few days to clear the roadsides and prepare the site for the drill. The drill involves some 200 staff, Finland's F-A-18 Hornet fighter jets, and other military aircraft. The country is applying to join NATO following neighboring Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now to the energy crisis in Europe. Germany plans to keep two of the country's three remaining nuclear power plants running until mid-April. That's amid a collapse in energy supply. The announcement by Economy Minister Robert Habeck means the government has officially reversed Germany's long-held plan to shut down its nuclear plants by the end of the year. Habeck said the decision to keep the two plants in southern Germany operating into next year was a necessary step to devoid a potential power grid shortages. Habeck's party, the Greens, has long opposed nuclear power. But in recent months, he acknowledged that several factors could come together to severely strain Europe's energy supplies this winter. Habeck said the nuclear power supply situation in France was a big factor. Some members of the government have argued in favor of running all three remaining reactors for as long as possible. As the energy crisis continues, communities in Spain are responding by installing more solar panels as they aim to become more self-sufficient. After years of weekly meetings, the residents of a housing development in Madrid are taking another step towards energy self-sufficiency by installing solar panels on their roofs. Now there are 102 more houses with solar panels. We are reaching 200 installations in only two years. This is important. Well, this is the process we have followed, a process of joining forces, of joining work and of joining interests. According to the government's Institute for Energy Saving and Diversification, Spain installed over one gigawatt worth of rooftop solar panels last year. They expect to install another two gigawatts by the end of this year. It's uh, important not only for investment funds or the traditional utilities to be involved in this transition. For us, it's very important for local communities, for individuals, for small companies, for municipalities to take an active role. Recent legislation includes for the first time the so-called energy communities. That's to allow individuals, families and communities to produce renewable energy. Eco Energy Cooperative said they have received twice as many requests for the installation of solar panels in Madrid since the law passed. The market is quite saturated. We are scheduling our next installations into 2023. 
because we do not have enough materials, components, and also installers and technicians. On average, solar panel installations have allowed homes to self-produce between 40 to 60 percent of the energy they consume. As a result, they have made huge savings on utility bills. After the first year since the installation, I've suddenly reduced my gas consumption by 40 percent, with very little use of three radiators strategically placed in the house. My installation is 15 solar panels with a power of 5,500 watts. That gives me enough for my home, gives me enough to pay zero euros on the bill. If there is any excess production during summer, it can be stored in a virtual battery for use in winter. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, the Bank of England has stepped in to buy government bonds at an urgent pace to calm the market. It follows the International Monetary Fund's rebuke of the UK government's mini-budget. And inflation is hitting Australian pet owners hard. Animals adopted for lockdown companionship are now returning to shelters. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. The Bank of England has launched emergency measures to prevent borrowing costs from spiraling out of control. The announcement comes after fears over government economic policies sparked a sell-off in the bond market and sent the pound tumbling. Entity's Malcolm Hudson is in London. Investors are selling government bonds. The pound has taken a hit. The International Monetary Fund has stepped in with a rebuke of the UK government. And now the Bank of England says it will buy bonds in an attempt to calm the market. All this in response to the government's tax-cutting fiscal strategy announced last week. Following the sudden drop in the pound and the uncertainty in the market, the IMF said it is closely monitoring economic developments in the UK. They said the nature of the UK measures will likely increase inequality and... We do not recommend large and untargeted fiscal packages at this juncture. Usually, the IMF only speaks like this to emerging markets. This is the first time they have rebuked a G7 nation in such a way. The IMF statement appears to have pushed the Bank of England to immediate action. Initially, the bank said it would look at raising interest rates as much as needed in November. This suggested a more mellow approach. But now the Bank of England has said there could be a risk to the UK's financial stability. To restore orderly market conditions, the bank said it will carry out temporary purchases of long-dated UK government bonds from September 28th. The bank is seeking to prevent borrowing costs from spiralling out of control. It's mounted pressure on Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng to regain the market's confidence in the UK economy. On Wednesday, Kwarteng met with representatives from the Bank of America, JP Morgan and other major banks. He outlined the government's commitment to fiscal discipline and discussed how last week's growth plan will expand to the supply side of the economy. Plans include tax incentives and tax reforms to help build businesses through new opportunities. With a drastic shift in the government's fiscal policy and the market's sharp reaction, there has been criticism from many different angles. Keir Starmer calls for the new budget to be abandoned. 
and an investment director from AJ Bell, a FTSE 250 company, has expressed doubt over whether the Bank of England's actions will be enough to convince the skeptics. But other commentators have said time will tell. Much rests on how the government navigates through this new course they are charting. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News London. Dramatic video shows a commuter falling under the tracks in front of an arriving train at a station in Argentina. Don't worry, the story ends well. The man was treated for minor injuries and shock after the incident last week in Buenos Aires. A camera on the front of the train shows the man losing his balance and falling between the rails as the train rolls over the top of him. The man was rescued from under the train by emergency services and treated at a local hospital. According to the hospital, the man only had minor bruises on his legs and arms and was released after a day. Inflation in the wake of the pandemic is straining pet owners in Australia. They now have to decide whether to keep or to give up their animal friends. Let's take a look. For more than one year, an unusual sign has been concerning the staff at Monica's Doggy Rescue in Sydney. In the last year, it's just been horrendous. In the, all the 20 years that I've been in rescue, I have never seen it like this. The, the number of animals in the pounds and shelters that are just desperate to get out, the number of calls, emails, texts that we get here of people wanting to surrender their animals, and it's just never ending, and we can only help so, so few. It's heartbreaking. A similar issue arises with the Animal Welfare League of New South Wales. The number of pets surrendered there has jumped 34% in the past two years. That means a shortage of both space and resources. Chief Stephen Albin says the change is closely linked to COVID-19. COVID was a really weird time, and especially in Australia where we had uh, lengthy lockdowns. I think quite a few people just wanted companionship. So they went and got a pet, they got a companion, but they didn't quite understand uh, what it takes to keep a pet. As work and travel resume post-pandemic and the cost of living shoots up, owners are having to reconsider their ability to keep pets. Paul Kelly, for example, says he's become more strategic about buying essentials like pet food. Mostly, I, I try and buy things when they're on special. Um, yesterday there was um, biscuits on special for half price, so I just stocked up and bought three bags, you know, which will last her quite well because she likes to eat other things. So for me it's kind of just trying to buy in bulk when, when the specials are on and when they're not you just have to buy them because they're your best friend, right? <laughs> there are also those who struggle. While purchasing her dog Opie during COVID, Holly Metcalf didn't realize the additional cost it would involve. Um, he was really sick when he was a puppy in the first kind of breath, so where you weren't allowed to take them out for a while, that extended by like another couple of months. He had sickness, diarrhea all through the house, like all in the process. Um, didn't actually know what it was, took him to the vet a thousand times. It probably cost me about three and a half, four grand or so, which was completely unexpected um, as a cost of that. But like Kelly, she ultimately resolved to keep Opie despite the odds. Still to come, an iconic James Bond stunt car is sold for over $3 million with all money going to charity. Details to come on NTD News Today. An iconic James Bond car sells for over $3 million at auction. It's an Aston Martin DB5 replica used for the stunts in the blockbuster film No Time to Die.
Well, it's, it's an iconic car in an iconic franchise uh, with a unique set of uh, features on it that will never, ever be seen on, ever again. There are only two of them in the country or in the world. One of them is, is up for sale today. The other will never be sold. Auction House Christie's says the car was purchased by an anonymous telephone bidder. They said the proceeds will benefit a variety of charities, including the Prince's Trust that works with young people, a British royal charity that supports members of the UK intelligence agencies, and three other charities for members of the UK Special Forces. An array of James Bond props and costumes have been auctioned for charity as the film franchise celebrates 60 years. Online bidding for other James Bond memorabilia remains open until next Wednesday. Day, October 5th. The day is called James Bond Day because its numbers contain 005. Two or three cups of Joe a day could lead to a longer life. That's according to a new study published in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology. Researchers analyzed data from more than 449,000 people between the ages of 40 and 69. They found that those who drink coffee had increased longevity and lower risk of cardiovascular disease when compared to non-coffee drinkers. The benefits were there whether the person enjoyed ground, instant, or even decaffeinated coffee. Researchers say the lowest risks were found in those who consumed four to five cups a day of ground coffee, along with those who enjoyed two to three cups a day of instant coffee. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.